Good morning. No greater love. And last week, we talked about the power of God's extended love. And you know, believe me, I listened to every word of last week's message. (laughs) And today, we're going to talk about the inner enemy that surrounds us. Um, We're going to go back to John, the apostle of love, and let him explain to us what we shouldn't love. What we shouldn't love. For years, you know, we said that the Christian has three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, and in, and when the, 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 the Me Too movement started in about mm, 2017, more and more sexual abuse came to light. And, you know, the abusers were well-known people. Athletes, they were politicians, actors, and even some youth leaders and church pastors. And I said to myself, you know, the flesh must have more power than I ever imagined. Today, we refer to the flesh sometimes as a sinful nature. And the Greek word for flesh is sarx. And it refers to the sinful state of human beings presented frequently as a power in opposition to the Holy Spirit. The flesh is often understood as the seat and rebellion toward God. There's one verse that I found that really says it all in Romans 13:14. It says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to, to gratify its desires. In other words, I said, you know, instead of wasting precious time satisfying our questionable and selfish cravings, Paul here encourages us to clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, the word provision, make no provision for the flesh. The word provision in the original language carries the idea of thinking about what you will do in the event something happens. Like the Boy Scouts. Be prepared. So, if we think about pleasing our selfish desires... We basically furnish the fuel to make it happen. Now, when the opportunity presents itself, we will act on those sinful desires. We prepared ourselves for that to happen. Thus, making no provision for the flesh could be translated, do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the NIV. Or don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. That's the NLT. Or forget about satisfying the desires of your sinful nature. That's God's word translation. Or put on the Lord Jesus Christ as if he were your clothing. And don't think about how to satisfy your sinful desires. That's the New International Reader's Version. You know, to make provision for the flesh is basically planning for a failure. And it's like an alcoholic who's trying to stay sober. But he tucks away a little liquor in a secret place just in case. He's making provision for the flesh and no doubt will fall off the wagon. In a similar way, those who seek to live godly lives 
must put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Now, as we see throughout the scripture, the scripture emphasizes the power of our thinking. Making no provision for sinful desires requires, number one, taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. How do we do this? By guarding our hearts. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And by thinking about the things that are worthy, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, is there any excellence? If there is anything worthy of praise, Paul says, think on these things. I was in speaking in in Fresno, California, and um, this was a while ago. And uh, one of the church members, great guy, apparently great guy. He just went up to the pastor of the church and said, uh, don't expect me in church during pro football season. I mean, he had made provision for the flesh. Let's face it. So, the sinful nature uh, wants to do the opposite. Listen to Galatians 5, 16 and 17. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves, watching football instead of being with others and serving in the church. The sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. So that's our first enemy. It's called the flesh or the sinful nature. Let's move on to the second enemy, who is Satan. Now, we are well aware from the Bible, from experience, or we've heard how powerful Satan is. So we don't want to spend too much time on this. He's called the tempter. That's his name. He's the tempter in two places. Here's one of them. Matthew 4, 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But, okay, the flesh, yes. The, the, the Satan, yes. What about the world? If the flesh has a strong pull, and it does, if the devil is more powerful than we are, and he is, What about the world? Isn't it, whatever the world is, isn't it also powerful? You betcha. So let's open our Bibles to 1 John 2, 15 to 17. And let's read in the version that you have or on your phone. Let's read what it says. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that it is in the world, the desires. Now, some of us who are a little older, we used to hear this word used to be the lust. Remember the lust of the flesh? So, for all that is in the world, the desires or lust of the flesh and the desires or lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, what John is saying here, so as not to love the world, we got to do a couple of things. 
And the first one is understand what the world is. Now, for centuries, Christians have been trying not to be worldly. Because we don't want to be worldly. We know, we all know this verse. Because we know that the world is dangerous. And when John mentioned the world, he really expected his readers to know what he was talking about. And they did. But we sometimes, including me, don't. We don't understand. So a lot of mistaken ideas have arisen and, and just made things worse. So we don't have a lot of time today, but we'll take a look at a couple of those mistaken concepts and then see if we can arrive at a biblical definition of what the world is. All right. Some people came to a conclusion that the world, not to be worldly, must separate ourselves from unbelievers. Now, you saw a little of that, the concept anyway, in the video. Thinking that the world is, in fact, non-Christians or worldly people. This was a conclusion of some monks from yesteryear. I can't believe I used that word, yesteryear. Is that, is that really a word? Or did that just come up in the Lone Ranger? But yesteryear, yeah. And um, separate our people. You know, and, 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 but, you know, the concept is still alive and well in some people today where people retire to a secluded place for the rest of their lives so as not to be in contact with anyone who is worldly. I, uh, my wife has a nephew and he and his wife and their five children, they went to a church where the pastor insisted, insisted that the entire congregation live together to have no contact with them. And some of you are from anybody here from Guadalajara. Both, um, you've been in the part of the city that, uh, that, 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 well, anyway, there's an s- entire section in Guadalajara, Mexico that is populated by one church, La Luz del Mundo. One church. You know, and there are Christian communes in Australia and Christian retirement homes. You know, the problem with that concept is that it doesn't recognize that we carry the ability to be worldly within ourselves, no matter where we live or who we live with. It's our inner person that's got the change, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit, no matter what our circumstances are. You know, there's... Um, I'm going to quote John 3.16 here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loves the world. And he sent his son to live amongst and associate with us, the world. And it says in 1 Peter 2.21 that he is our example And we're to follow in his steps. As a result, we will love God. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And we will love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. And then we will love Those non-Christians. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery. You must not commit murder. You must not steal. You must not covet. These and other commandments are summed up in this one commandment. 
love your neighbor as yourself. And then we will love our enemies and not withdraw from them. But to you who are willing to listen, I say love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. You know, I think it's sort of summed up in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, when Paul said, When I wrote to you, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But, you know, I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. You know, those of us in ministry, maybe Andy Andy can, can identify with this, but those of us in ministry, we have a problem. And that is, you know, when I go to the office, I'm around Christians. I've got a Zoom meeting tomorrow at 3 p.m. to pastors in Argentina, Christians. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to southern Argentina and to Patagonia. Not the clothes line, but the real place in Patagonia, in southern Argentina. Who am I going to speak to? I'm going to speak to pastors, Christians. I'm going to speak in two theological seminaries, Christians. You know, and so, and, and uh, we come to church, Christians. And so, for us, we have a problem, and that is associating or getting or with non-Christians, so we can we can be salt and light. So we have chosen to go to dentists, mechanics, doctors who are non-Christians. In fact, my dentist asked me, "Can you explain to me what it means to be born again?" And and uh, and at the gym, we look at the gym where we work out. You know, is our mission field. In fact, when I when I come back from a trip, my Pilates, I know Pilates, you know, but, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 81 years old and I'm still, you know, it's Pilates. And uh, my Pilates teacher says, and she's she's from an, another, what we would call a cult. She says, Jim, tell us what you said in that interview or tell us what you said in that message when you were in Argentina or where you were. And so I have a chance to explain the gospel every time I come back from a trip. You know, that means that one of the purposes of us gathering together, Bible studies, life groups, prayer meetings, men's and women's groups, is to recharge our spiritual batteries so we can be sent back out into the world. Another incorrect conclusion that has been given over the years defines the world as objects or activities that the Christian must avoid. And it's still, it was and is still called legalism. I grew up in it. In fact, the church that I went to when I, when I was saved when I was 16 years old had a list, a list of things that we, we couldn't do. Legalism is when I don't do a series of things not strictly prohibited in the Bible. I don't do the things that are strictly prohibited. Not strictly prohibited in the scriptures. And expect to win God's favor by doing them. And when I become a Christian, you know, I stop doing those things. Now, it's clear that there are activities that are not suitable for a believer. 
But we cannot guarantee by avoiding them, one does not love the world or the things that are in the world. Now, let me explain what I noticed as a young person in our church that had the list of things. Number one, after deciding which activities I should avoid, I see my brother or sister doing something that was forbidden in my own list. You know, Luis Palau told me a few years ago that one time when he had, he had been saved, he went and he was looking at the marquee on, on, a, um, on a moving picture. And someone from the church saw him and reported him to the elders. And they put him under discipline. That's legalism. And you know, here's what I do. I see someone doing something that's on my list and I judge him or condemn him. You know what? You know what my list is? My list is the best list. Because if yours was better, I'd have yours. And what I do is, here's my list. It's a list of convictions. And slowly, but over time, I convert them into commandments. And the second that they're commandments, you have to do what's on my list. Legalism. And I become the judge, and as a result, I become the worldly person I'm trying to avoid. Then I feel proud because I don't do those things. There's a sin of pride and arrogance. And my Christianity now depends on not what Christ is doing in my heart, but on the external things that I do or don't do. And I continue to judge and condemn people according to my list, and I end up being a judge. You know, James, the brother of the Lord, had something to say about that in James chapter 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What I'm basically doing is I'm saying, God, the judge, God, you need help judging people. And I'm going to give you a hand. So, what happens then? This was the attitude of the Pharisees. They didn't have anything internal in here. For that reason, they had to put on a facade, something external. And those who judge others end up being worldly because they're fixing their affections on the external and not inside. I think Paul pretty much concludes all of this in Colossians 2, 20 to 23. He says, you have died with Christ. And he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide how much help? No help in conquering a person's evil desires. Now, it doesn't mean that we need, we have freedom in Christ, that we use that freedom 
that he is to as a license for sin. No, we must not use our convictions as standards and not judge and make our spirituality depend uh, depend upon these things. We need to let our spirituality depend upon what Christ is doing in our life and not the pride for not participating in certain activities. Paul says in Galatians, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't let your freedom, use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Then, there's another thing that I've noticed that have came up, has come up in that, in this, in this, uh, discussion on worldliness is some people think the world is secular employment. Some, some seek to work in a Christian ministry. Many people think that working in a Christian ministry is a rose garden. It isn't. You know, believe me. You know, I really believe that Jesus tells what's on his heart when he says, we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. The salt has to penetrate to do its work. We have to be in the world to affect the world. Now, here we are. Now we're going to start in. What is the world? And I'm going to give my definition in the first line, and then I, I got other definitions from other people. The world is a philosophy or system of thought. It is a way of thinking that leads to loving things and using people. That's my definition. Loving things and using people. It exalts human beings and leaves God outside. It's a philosophy that says the end justifies the means. Now, the world exalts vengeance and its own rights. You have the right to do what you want. The world judges according to external things, trusts in its possessions, in its achievements, in its conquests. The world's priorities are in reverse. And sometimes even within the church, worldly people use the methods of the world to achieve the ends of God. You know, Paul has something to say about that in 2 Corinthians 4, 2. Rather, we have renounced the secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You know, there's a problem, in, uh, a common problem in the whole world. And, the, and it's interesting, as you go to different parts of the world, they solve this problem differently. The problem is childlessness. Childlessness. Now, we have a way of, of, of solving that here in the United States. But let's take a look at Genesis 16 and see how they solved it. This is the story of Sarah and Abraham. Well, he wasn't Abraham yet. He was Abram. But... And um, what what that culture, the way that culture solved that problem was, hmm, you haven't got any children? Bring in the maid. Now, it was common. It wasn't considered immorality. Uh, it solved the problem, created others. As you could, if you read through Genesis 16, it created others. But it was common, it wasn't considered immorality, and the culture thought it was fine. But it's a worldly solution. And that's why we need discernment. 
The world promises things it can never fulfill. The word claims, world claims that there is nothing better, nothing higher than external things. There is nothing more precious than what the world can give you. Money, fame, power, pleasure, position. And as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, if you want a little homework, something to do when you get home, if you watch any television, study the commercials. Note how they are appealing to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or the pride of life. There's one particular one that affected me, and that was a crazy commercial about, about GMC pickups. And this, I think it was the man who bought two his and her pickups. And, and the wife chose the one he wanted, but it's okay. I mean, chose one, goes over and hugs it, and says, I love it. For some reason, that really, really affected me. But do it. Take a look at some of those and see how they're appealing to it. Now let's read 1 John 2, 15 and 17 from the New Living Translation. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but they are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. For sure, this is the enemy that surrounds us. John divides the world into three categories here. And uh, it's the desires or lusts of the flesh, the desires or lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The desires of the flesh can be defined as an intense desire which takes natural desires and changes them into a passion Or obsession. Really, you could say, really an idol. For example, it's natural to be hungry. But the desires of the flesh can turn food into an idol. Likewise, it's natural desire for sexual relations. There's nothing wrong with having uh, sexual relations with your husband or your wife. In fact, in fact, the Bible encourages it. But the desire of the flesh turns this into an idol saying, hmm, you can do it with whoever you want, whenever you want. That's the world. Perhaps the best passage on this part of the world is Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And notice he says, that's not all. He says, and things like these. There's more. So, my question I ask myself, is there something in my life, in your life, 
That's an idol that needs to be changed. Second, the desires of the eyes. Proverbs says something wonderful. Proverbs 20, verse 12. Notice, ears to hear, eyes to see, both are gifts from the Lord. What a blessing our eyes are. My wife has been awestruck by the different colors on the trees. This is a picture that Dan Hickman put up on his Facebook page. Look at that. Isn't that wonderful? You know, to be able to see God's creation, to see all the people that you know and love and the wonders of your life. Our eyes are a blessing. But the evil heart twists and perverts the eyes. And Jesus says, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The eyes a gift of God turned into a tool for Satan. Now, just to show you that you don't really have to have eyes to, to, to do that. Remember, you know, Ray Charles, Ray Charles. Yep. He, great singer, great singer and piano player. He was he was blind. He fathered 12 children from 10 different women. So you don't have to necessarily have your eyes to be able to do that. The desire of the eyes is to be captivated by external things without seeing their real value. For example, in the Garden of Eden, Eve took what's pleasing to her eyes. The eyes are not bad. It's the misuse of them that causes the problems. Remember Lot, Lot's wife? She looked back and died. Achan, the sin of Achan, remember Ai in the Old Testament? Achan looked, coveted, and took. And it caused a huge defeat for the nation of Israel. How about Samson? One day, when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. And when he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. His father and mother objected. Hmm, isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among among all the Israelites you could marry? They said, why must you go to a pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson said to her, told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. David, King David. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof to the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing, saw from a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Now, we're all aware of the rest of the story. David paid profoundly for the sin he committed of adultery and really murder for the rest of his life. The psalmist says this, turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Job, recognizing the temptation, said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust on a young woman. As we leave this one, is there something that we need, you need to turn your eyes from? Finally, 
the pride of life. Hey, there are two Greek words that define the word life. One means external things. The other one means internal things. We're talking about the external ones. Not loving the world is not loving those external things. Basically, the pride of life has to do with competition or, or trying to impress people uh, with things whose importance really doesn't exist biblically. It's about stirring up envy in other people with material possessions. It's, it's not unbiblical. Obvi- I almost said obviamente. Uh, obviously. It's not unbiblical to have material possessions or, or even power or even prestige unless we end up loving them. Paul says it very clearly. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So the worldly person loves things and uses people, while the Christian loves people and uses things. Is there something in your life, my life, that needs to change from love to use, from use to love? To not love the world Paul, uh, John ends up here with three reasons why we shouldn't live the world, love the world. Number one, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in. You know, when I first read this, it actually took my breath away. So I'm going to read it again. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, there's several ways to understand that the love of the Father is not in us. And I think the context leads us to understand that John refers to the love for the Father. It's not that the Father stops loving us. We know from Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But the loving the world means that it is no longer the Father's love that is motivating us. Philo, Philo was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher, said, It's impossible for love to the world to coexist with love to God. That that made me think immediately of Matthew 6.24, which says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. I was in Napa, California, preaching at a Christian Missionary Alliance church there. And uh, they had uh, two two softball teams, and they were entered into the city league. And um, one of the softball teams was there to witness about God's goodness, to enjoy fellowship with each other and have a good time. The other softball team, it was white knuckle softball. These This team would win the, the city championship almost every year and had a lousy testimony. So the the leadership of the church, I was we were seeing there. They were telling me about this. The leadership of the church decided to mix up the teams. You know, take some of the people here, put it into this team and this. You know, so both of the teams could could enjoy each other, could could reach out. Every member of that one team left the church. That's the world. That's the world they're thinking. Love of the Father was not in them. Second reason not to love the world, the world's passing away. John says, 
is that the world is fading away along with all those desires. We, I think we need to capture the temporary nature and superficiality of the system that the Bible calls the world. Paul makes a comment in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things we cannot see. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. You know, when I... uh, I was uh, 15 years old. I got the best base. That's me, 15 years old. And that's, that's the glove that I'm referring to. And um, I played baseball. I, morning, noon, and night, I played baseball. And I got this glove, and I oiled it. I put two, two baseballs in it and wrapped it, and every night sit it next to my bed. And then I'd take it off in the morning, you know, go out and play. Well, you know, after a while, I played so much that the glove wore out. And so I learned at a temporary age, the temp- the, uh, at a very a young age, the temporary nature of those things that you put your affections on. Third reason not to love the world. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. This, to me, is the strongest incentive not to be captivated by the world. He who does God's will lives forever. The writer I. Howard Marshall, by the way, he's got a good commentary on 1 John, says this. Many are tempted to live in the moment, to conform their life to the material world and to doubt the temporary character of material things, and hope that there is no judgment. But God's response would be that the judgment is being carried out. At this very moment, the world is in the process of dissolution. People are blind if they don't realize what is happening before their eyes. Don't love the world. Don't give it your affections. It doesn't deserve them. Don't expect anything from the world more than it can deliver. And it delivers what its leader wants. Who's that leader? Satan. Second Corinthians 4. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of, the, of those who don't believe. So, how are we going to separate ourselves from this philosophy that permeates society? Napoleon, who I don't think was a great theologian, but he had a couple of interesting quotes. He said, to conquer, you must replace. John assumes that we have to love something. So let us love God, love our family, love our neighbors ourselves, love our enemies, and use things. One would be so in love with God, that there's no place for the love of things in this world. Martin Luther said, I have had many things in my hands, and I've lost them all. But the things that I put in the hands of God, I still have them. 
We cannot and, 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 and we should not leave this world because we have a ministry here. Nor can we separate ourselves from the sphere of influence or the philosophy of the world. Because we carry the capacity to be worldly here in our hearts. But with the power of Christ, we can establish priorities. We can walk in the light of God. And we will not be molded by the influence of the world. There's only one person who lives forever. This is the person who does God's will. Now, some of us may have our priorities upside down. Take a minute. To see if some way you're loving the world. I remember a guy came to me about, um, he was a, a model train aficionado. He loved, mo- he had one of the greatest setups you know, I've ever seen, model trains. And he was wondering, is, is, is that an idol for me? You know, I said, are you using it to evangelize? Are you using it to have fellowship with other brothers in Christ? And then a pastor in Chicago had season tickets to the Chicago Cubs games. Are you taking people with you to spend some time with them? Do you love baseball or do you love people? Now, I'm going to be full disclosure this morning. I had to make some changes in that area myself to get my priorities straight. So what how can we end? What's the best best verse? To end on, Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's what John says about the enemy that surrounds us. Lord, we thank you for these moments together. Lord, they're so precious when we read your word and we can see what you want for us. Lord, if there are any changes that need to be made, help us to make them, Lord. Make them to honor you, because we know those who honor you will live forever. In Jesus' name, amen.